Hi folks, let me explain what's going on. What you're hearing is the song Rosalie by the Great White Way Orchestra being played at the same time as What's Up by Four Non Blondes. And I do need to turn that off right now because it's really annoying. Let me just... There we go. Much better. So here's What's Up. I do the copyright expired music thing because I, of course, could not get the song I really wanted, which, as I explained last week, is the legendary track, Song of the Summer, 1993 through 1998, the national anthem of Belize, that's true, What's Up by Four Non Blondes. Here's what I was thinking. All right, all the record companies, they have software that scrubs the internet looking for stuff that's under copyright. If I play it at the same time, as another song, I can basically scramble the digital profile of the music and kind of get the song that I wanted. The song they played at FDR's funeral, What's Up, by Four Non Blondes. And honestly, I was kind of hoping that playing the songs at the same time would make it as good as both songs put together. It didn't really work out that way. But I will find a way to one day have my intro music be the song What's Up by Four Non Blondes, the song that many people think is uh, the reason Kurt Cobain killed himself, because he realized he would never write a song that amazing. Hello, welcome to the I Might Be Wrong podcast. I'm Jeff Maurer. This is a very special episode of the I Might Be Wrong podcast, because for the first time, this is content that you cannot find on my substack at imightbewrong.substack.com, where you can go find all my articles, subscribe, and also tell me how inappropriate that Kurt Cobain joke was. But I do have an interview on the podcast today. This is something I would like to do more. The interview is with CEO of Substack, Chris Best, notably not the Chris Best, who was the drummer for the Beatles, (laughs) who got kicked out and replaced by Ringo in 1962, although I would also love to have that Chris Best on the program. Open invitation to Chris Best, formerly of the Beatles. Actually, my God, that would be a fantastic conversation. All right. This may become an all-Chris-best podcast, because I would actually love to talk to the dude who got kicked out of the Beatles. But today, I'm going with a second-choice Chris-best. <laughs> he was being nice by doing the interview. Second-choice Chris-best, CEO of Substack. I wanted to talk to him because we talk so much about tech companies and tech platform design and tech company censorship and all these big decisions. I wanted to talk to somebody who is actually making those decisions, and this guy is... I wanted to hear his logic. I already knew that we had a bit of a point of disagreement. He has a point of view that I think is like very understandable, and yet I think he's sticking to his guns maybe a little too absolutely, but we get into this in the discussion, and it was nice of him to do this interview. I first found out he knew who I was when he popped up uh, posting a comment on one of my blogs, so I asked him if he'd do an interview, and to my surprise, he said yes. So here is my interview with Substack CEO and non-Beatle Chris Best. Chris Best, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So you and I had a weird introduction because <laughs> um, the, the first contact I ever had with you, I it was based on these columns I write in the voice of Paul Fox, who for the record is not a spam bot. But what happened was there were these comments that were post, comments that were popping up on my blog and other blogs in the voice of this person claiming to be Paula Fox. She had a uh, very fake-looking, topless avatar, and she was posting these comments that are obviously spam. 
so I thought it'd be funny to write a column in that voice. And the point being, I can't believe my comments are getting taken down. I'm a real person. I just happen to talk <laughs> like this. Substack, how dare you? And after writing an entire column in that in the voice of a spam bot, it was actually taken down from Substack for about 15 minutes until Substack realized what was going on. And you commented, you commented on that post. So it, there was clearly some awareness of this in the Substack office. Yeah. So you can, you can probably tell our conflict on this, which is on the one hand, it was hilarious. On the <laughs> other hand, our poor anti-spam team who'd been like fighting and fighting, <laughs> trying to prevent people getting emails from this topless Paula Fox, bleary eyed, sees one more, like a full post going out from Paula Fox. They're like, oh God, Paula Fox, she's escaped. She's taking over. Quick, take it down. And they're like losing their minds. And it took a second to sort of register that this was actually a hilarious joke, um, which we had a good well, laugh I'm glad at they after. Found it funny. <laughs> I'm glad they found it funny, and I'm glad they got the joke because it, it was in the voice of this notorious spam bot. <laughs> Did it come at a time when, like, they thought they had beaten her? They thought they had <laughs> gotten it Finally, all the way off, and then oh no, Paula here Fo Paula Fox to another dimension. Yeah, no, there. I mean, you know, this is a thing we're constantly fighting people trying to spam and send emails and all this stuff, and it's always like something we take really seriously because it sucks if you get spam email, especially through a Substack. Um, and then, yeah, they were yeah, a little trigger happy. Yeah, I thought, she, I thought she was not adding to the quality of my comments section. <laughs> I, I, I think the comment section on my blog is normally pretty fun, and uh, she's just trying to sell herbal Viagra. I think that makes it a little <laughs> bit less fun. I, I think the fact that your uh, team flagged it is, uh, I'm flattered that I seem to have nailed the voice that accurately. That there for you a go, split yeah, second, you fooled the classifiers. So anyway, th thank you for coming on to talk to me. I think this is going to be an interesting conversation because there's so much debate about tech platforms and the decisions they have to make about content moderation, starting with but not limited to the Paula Foxes of the world. And you're a person who actually has to make these decisions. And I've watched you on you know other interviews on other various places, and you clearly have well thought through opinions on these things. Um, you clearly, these decisions that you've made, they're not lightly considered. So I, I was wondering if you could start by talking about the type of experience you want people to have when they're on Substack and how that maybe differs from other platforms that are out there. Yeah, happy to. The way that we think about this, the reason we started the company, the reason I kind of work on this problem is I've always believed that what you read matters. Um, it shapes how you think. In a real sense, it shapes who you are. And that's just like an important thing, right? Like like if you write a great piece of, of thought, of a story, of writing, and it changes, you know, who a thousand or a million people are, that's just powerful. And in turn, you know, it kind of shapes who we are as a society, right? The world of stories and ideas shapes our culture and has the power to sort of change history through that. And so how the stories and ideas are distributed and valued and how writers are treated and rewarded and who has the power or doesn't have the power to, to censor, to prevent things, to shape what we read matters a great deal. And so the thing that we try to do at Substack, our principle for this is we try to put writers and readers in charge. We think that of ourselves as kind of like giving a lever uh, for you to move the world. And, you know, 
in service of writers and readers, we think we can, you know, we aim to build a system that can set up the rules of the game in such a way that that actually works really well. Where writers have independence, they can do the work they actually believe in, they actually can make money doing something that's valuable, and readers can kind of take back their mind. So rather than giving all of their attention to kind of like the, the slot machine of TikTok or whatever, it cre- we can create this alternate space where you can spend time with people that you trust and that you find intellectually stimulating and that you, you know, feel like you're spending your life and your attention better. And right. we see our role in that not as being the ones that are like, hey, eat your vegetables. Like, here's what we think you should be spending your time with. Um, if, the, if all we can do is return that decision to you and let you make it as your best self, if you can decide as a reader by your own lights what you want to pay attention to, who you want to trust, how you want to consume media and think about the world. And as a writer, if you have the power to, to tell the truth as you see it and do the thinking that you want, even if those aren't the choices that we at Substack would be happy with, we think we've done a, a great good in the world. Did you see the last episode of Game of Thrones? I didn't. You didn't? Sorry. <laughs> because there's a... Then I'll make this brief. Uh, because the, the speech that ends Game of Thrones is about the power of stories. And it was very reminiscent of uh, much of what you just said. Um, so I was basically going to accuse you of plagiarism. <laughs> if, you had seen, if you had seen the last episode of Game of Thrones, you haven't. So you're off the hook, but it is very much about the power, the power of stories, uh, the power of writing. And it, it sounds, you know, tell me if I'm misinterpreting what you said, but it sounds like you want the platform to basically get out of the way and be as little involved in the interaction between readers and writers as possible. Is that an accurate characterization? That's, I would say that's half of it. Right. I, I think of okay. the platform as serving readers and writers and putting the, the, the writers and readers in charge. And so part of the deal with Substack is when you sign up for someone's Substack, you have a direct relationship with them. You're not signing up for Substack. You're signing up for Jap or whatever. Mm-hmm. And yeah. within that, we see it as, you know, if, if, if we feel if we have to come and intervene and be like, no, no, you wanted to read Jeff, but we're not going to let you. That's like a, mm-hmm. a failure mode, basically. We don't aspire to be sort of the arbiters of who you should read. Um, there's obviously lots of complicated exceptions to stuff like that. There's the Paula Foxes of the world. Um, but in general, <laughs> like, that's sort of the principle. Okay. So the, so the, ha- the half that we're understanding each other on is the half that says you don't want to be highly involved in curation, right? Which is which is something that the other platforms do when you're on Twitter, when you're on Facebook, that's not a chronological list of all the stuff your contacts posted. That's a curated list. They've got an algorithm that selects what pops up first. And so that's something specifically that you don't want to be involved in, right? That's sort of on your do not do list. Is that correct? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a really specific thing there which is not only do those platforms have an algorithm that's shaping what you see, but they are doing it uh, with interests that are potentially at cross purposes to your own, right? If you're Mm -hmm. on TikTok, the goal of TikTok is to get you to spend as much of your life on TikTok as it possibly can. And that's probably not your goal. 
Um, and so to the extent that those things differ and to the extent that the things that make you the most engaged are not the things that make you the best off in your life and as a person, um, that, that's the thing where we seek to build an alternative to. Yeah, and there are big questions here because this is, this is tricky because you're right. The goal of a Twitter or a Facebook is to get people on there and have them stay as long as possible. It's engagement-based. That's the phrase that you often hear is engagement-based. Is that, let, let, me, let me play devil's advocate here. How, is that really a bad thing? Sometimes YouTube, Twitter, sometimes they'll give me stuff I really enjoy. Sometimes I can find stuff that I hadn't previously found and it's good. I'll, I'll find, Spotify is also great for this. I'll find a band I hadn't heard of. Um, sometimes the algorithm does have me completely pegged. They'll say, hey, uh, do you wanna watch this Monty Python sketch again? And I'm like, yes, yes I do actually. How did you know algorithm? Is the, is the algorithm really entirely a bad thing or are there good parts to it? Yeah, and that's a, that's a really fair point. I mean, if the algorithm's job is to give you stuff you're, you like, and is, is my position, stuff you like is bad, actually. And, it's, and, and not really. I mean... <laughs> is that a slogan? Is that a, an official yeah. Substack slogan? Finally, Everything an alternative like to stuff shit. you like. <laughs> so you saw all these platforms giving people stuff they like and enjoy, and you thought, I'm going to do something okay, different. Fuck that. <laughs> it's a bold strategy. I mean, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's you're, probably, you're probably the only one doing that. Here's the analogy I would draw. Right? There's stuff you like and there's stuff you like. If I decided to uh, run my diet by having a big glass bowl of candy on my desk at eye level at all times, and the way that I ate food is I just would take a candy out of the bowl every time I feel like it, on the one hand, I like candy. And I'm choosing to eat the candy and no one's putting a gun to my head and saying, you know, eat this candy, I am choosing it, right? But if I took a step back and thought, how do I want to arrange my diet? I wouldn't just carry the bowl of candy around at all times and eat it whenever I felt like it. Um, right. And yet that is exactly how many of us approach our information diet with social media. And if you take the like engagement thing, engagement's not bad, spending time on stuff's not bad, having interesting things is not bad. But if you take that to its like furthest, most logical extreme, it actually does become pretty bad. And so the Substack goal is not make things you don't like or like never have candy, but it's kind of like there might be different ways that you want to enjoy things. And if you were, if you make the decision as your best self, instead of in your weakest moment, doing one more scroll before you fall asleep, you might choose something different and you might find things that you like or that you find satisfying or valuable in a deeper and more important way. Right. You're right. Well, I think it's, first, I think it's good that you've softened your anti things people like position. <laughs> that That's probably wise. It's good that, that there. <laughs> there is some stuff on Substack we hope people can like. But I let me say, I completely take your point. And it's most dangerous when you're talking about politics, right? Because we, we know this now. This is pretty well-established research that the engagement-based model, which gives people just what they like all the time, it is fantastic at reinforcing people's views. It is fantastic about if you are very far left or very far right, solidifying that and in fact sending you down a rabbit hole where before long you think, wow, the entire world agrees with me. The entire world 
has these very far right or left opinions, just like I do. It's extremely dangerous when it comes to politics. I 100% get that. Let me ask, aren't there places, what about non-political spaces? Is it less dangerous if you're talking about non-political spaces? That's an interesting question. And I think you can you can draw, dis- I mean, you draw a distinction between an ad-supported social network to get grandma's pictures of the kids and maybe that's a that's a a different thing i do think there's a space for for ad supported feed based things i'm not like a this should never exist i do think though that when you when you make the algorithm really good at cranking up the engagement thing and those dynamics you're talking about where like the things you agree with or the things you hate are the things that like perform the best uh, something you may have observed on the internet is spaces that were once or p- should be non-political becoming political. Right. And these, I think you see this thing of this sort of like all-consuming culture war start to sweep in things like, yeah. you know, is yeah. bird watching a political topic? And if not, is there ever giant culture war issues around bird watching? Like this thing, you know, if, if, if the dynamics are strong enough, it everything becomes swept into it. It is true that spaces that uh, I would have thought wouldn't be political definitely are. If people listen to Blocked and, Repo- Blocked and Reported, which is a podcast that is on Substack, so there we go, product tie-in, um, they, they spend their entire podcast talking about these you know, very off-the-beaten-path internet beefs, which inevitably become political, and a lot of them are in these areas you would never expect to become political these like there was one about a style of fashion that like i had never even heard of but apparently they have a very fervent community uh ya literature is very big on these things yeah so i i I do take your point when i'm asking what about the non-political spaces it it is (laughs) worth which which ones are those tell me where those are are. yeah i I want to go to there (laughs) that's right if you could, if you could actually put a velvet rope around a space and say this is this is a legitimately non-political space, you might become incredibly popular. But you know, the reason I asked the question though is because, and I, I'm getting to uh, what I think is a source of friendly disagreement between you and me, because I 100% share your concerns of an overly curated platform that just reinforces everything everyone already believes. But I ask about the non-political spaces because I'm kind of wondering, are the algorithms good sometimes for connecting readers and writers, connecting people to the stuff that they want to read? I asked about a non-political space because I do imagine if there is, you know, a good blog about there, out there about Needlepoint or whatever. And there are Substack blogs about everything. That is one thing I have learned is there is whatever your interest, there is a blog for you. If there's a really good Substack about Needlepoint... Might I, as a reader, want to know, hey, you know, there's this other person who also writes about Needlepoint and they're very popular, FYI. Couldn't that be a good use of an algorithm? Yeah, and I think in general, so two points I'll make. One is that in general, this idea of I'm a writer on Substack. This is where I go to build my most valuable audience. This is people that actually come here for me. They have a direct relationship with me. Maybe they're paying me. One of the most valuable things we can do for you is help you grow that audience and help you find people who are going to like and fall in love with this thing that you're doing. And that's a service, that's a clear service on both sides, right? If we can connect you to your favorite Needlepoint blog, both you and your favorite Needlepoint blog, tremendously benefit from that. The second point is that I think that the whole like being against algorithms 
doesn't, as somebody who's a computer programmer, that doesn't strictly make sense. It's kind of like being against electricity. Like it's, it's a, it's a generic technology. It's every, like everything, the, everything on your computer is an algorithm. I think the interesting part, when, we, when people say algorithms, they often mean their, their newsfeed algorithm, the algorithm that's deciding what to show them. And I think the thing you have to ask there is what does that, what is that algorithm trying to do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right? What is it? What is it trying to do? And what is the what is the emergent consequence of the way that algorithm works? Mm-hmm. And so I think something you saw you see in a lot of social media is it's like, well, wouldn't it just be good if I saw things that I liked? So great, we're gonna like find the things that we think you'll like and show you the things we think you'll like, and that's gonna make a really good experience. And that's fine so far as it goes. But the thing that you've just done is you've created an incentive landscape where by deciding what to show me, you've changed the rules about how you win at Twitter or how you win at TikTok or how you become popular and what things, yeah. the evolutionary landscape of what memes and ideas survive. And you just have to be thoughtful about how you're doing that, basically. Um, yeah. And so we think, you know, we at Substack, we're not like, we never want to introduce you to something new because we do. It's, it's, it's great for us. It's great for the writers. It's great for you. But we just think that we want to do that in a way that, actually serves you and doesn't end up creating one of these like monstrous spiral things once you play the movie forward a little bit. And our yeah. one of the heuristics we have for how we can best do that is putting writers and readers in charge, putting people in charge. And so the way that we've started doing this is I think you've seen is we put a space where as a writer you can put your recommendations of other things that you think are worth people's time. And so if I as a reader come and it's like, hey, what else might I like? Here's some things that are recommended by someone I already know that I care about. That's a really powerful signal. It's actually a more powerful signal than, hey, the, the machine learning thing says that people like you might like this. It's more like, hey, this human being that I respect enough that I'm paying to follow put me onto this. Mm-hmm. It's really good. And it, it there's a clear responsibility, right? Like if you put me onto something bad, I can be like, what the hell? Why did you link yeah, me to that right. needlepoint thing that was actually a death cult or something? <laughs> there was actually a Paul, uh, actually a Paul Fox. Paul, Paul, thing. Yeah, there's just Paul Fox. And now Fox I've got nothing but viruses this, on my like computer. Yeah. <laughs> my God. <laughs> it, start, it starts with needlepoint, but then it quickly gets to herbal Viagra, <laughs> as all things notably do. Yeah, no, I take your point that certainly, yes, a... Uh, a recommendation from a writer that people already already know and already like uh, is going to be very valuable. Somebody pointed out one time that it's it's a little bit like how uh, rap used to work back in the day, in that like uh, established artists would have newer artists on to do a verse on a guest track, and like that's how you built your name in rap. It is a l- so yes, my uh, wonky political world is like you know. Me, slow, boring, and you know Matt Iglesias and Noah Smith and a couple people. We're, we're very much like rap, is my point. But it is true that all the growth I've seen so far—well, not all of it, but most of it—does come from getting placed in, you know, doing guest columns on other people's blogs, getting mentioned by other people on their blogs. So it is kind of old school, and I do like that part. I do wonder if. Because I'll tell you, that's very spotty. I wonder how sufficient that's going to be yeah. as a growth mechanism for you know for somebody like me, who my Twitter presence is basically non-existent because I I don't like Twitter and I <laughs> aggressively did not do it for all the years I was doing stand up, all the years I was running for John Oliver. I never used Twitter just because I didn't like it. I have no Twitter profile, 
it's all recommendations for me right now, which is great, but at times it's slow going. And one thing I think everyone should understand is that Substack absolutely does want their writers to grow. Even the most cynical person in the world should still understand that Substack wins when the writers do well. So Substack wants the writers to do well, which, by the way, gets me to something I wanted to mention. There's, a, there's an app now, right? Substack Reader? There is. Can you play, please tell us, because I want people to know about this. Please tell us about Substack Reader and uh, also explain why it's only available for iPhone, because I am on Android. I actually have a Motorola Razor. And I can't get Substack Reader. Oh, no. <laughs> so maybe you can explain. <laughs> yeah. Well, so if you have an iPhone, you should go to the App Store and get the Substack app right away. We are working on an Android one. And the reason it doesn't exist yet <laughs> is because poor people who are working on it are going as fast as they can. Uh, it will come out soon. Um, and yeah, the idea of it is just basically like, look, here's going to be a delightful place to read and listen and connect with you know, connect directly with the people you subscribe to on Substack like you do in your in your email inbox. And it lives by basically all of the exact same rules of that. Um, and it does give us a bunch of exciting ways where we can like make that connection deeper. You can have, makes it easier to do audio and video and comments and all this kind of stuff. Um, and it makes it, gives more places where you can get discovered, right? So this thing you're saying of like, hey, could you help people who would love my thing find my thing? Um, this is one place that we're introducing that does genuinely help with that because you can go over and look and find stuff that would be exciting to you. And I think there's like a lot that we can do on that front that will be really good. In the meantime, though, my, my pitch for it is just like it's a really nice reading app and listening app. Um, and it's a good place to like keep up with your sub stacks. It's, it's very it's very calming and subdued because uh, my wife has an iPhone. We're a mixed marriage. She has an iPhone. She's <laughs> Apple. Uh, so I've, I've used it and, uh, yeah, it is nice. You know, it's like no ads. It's only stuff that either she or I subscribe to. Uh, yeah, it's, it's nice. It reminds me a lot of Google reader, which was a, a pretty good app. Yeah. Rest and, in um, peace. I under, I understand how it is. It is actually like quite visibly the opposite of, uh, Twitter, which is kind of a noisy bells and whistles feel sometimes. Um, it's a, it's nice and it's calming. Will it come out soon? My mom has a uh, beige sort of box shaped uh, AT and T phone from the '80s in her den. Will it be available on that phone anytime soon? Might be a minute before before it comes to that. My last company, I did a lot of development for the BlackBerry. You remember those things? Oh sure, yeah, I had a BlackBerry back in the day. Yeah, they're still big in DC because they're they were all about <laughs> security for some time. People like as of a couple of years ago, we're still carrying around blackberries on Capitol Hill. But so, so you're you're <laughs> you're promising. This is a I, I've got you on the record. This is a promise that it will be available for blackberries soon. Yeah. Is that right? <laughs> yes. Anything anything with uh, anything with buttons like your microwave. Uh, you'll have the Substack app on within the next couple of weeks, definitely. Fantastic. <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to hold you to that. Um, I. I I like how you know it's funny. I can I can totally see how when you use the candy metaphor. I also like candy. I eat candy sometimes. It seems like there's a world in which the very engagement-based platforms exist, and you know I can go on there. I can go on there uh, the way I do now. When I'm pissed off something, I'm pissed off about something, and I just want someone to agree with me. I can go to a place and find someone to agree with me. But then when I want a different 
experience where I just want to go straight to the author that I know I want to read, that can be Substack. The place where I have some conflict is because I'm also a writer and I'm trying to get this thing to grow. And like I said, I know that Substack also wants me to grow because, you know, they win when I win. Is it too subdued? I, I wonder how bad it would be for the experience if there was a thing at the bottom. When I get to the bottom of an article, it's just the thing that's become very normal on all sorts of sites that I go to, including ones that are as stuffy as like The Economist. It just says at the bottom, people who read this also like. What's the, what's the thinking behind that's not something you're doing right now? I definitely think there's there's more stuff along these lines that we can do. The thing where we want to introduce uh, introduce people who are going to love stuff to things that they're going to read and help help writers grow. It's, it's something we are in general very interested in and want to find the right way to do. The thing that we trade it off against, or the, the reason we are are proceeding sort of thoughtfully on this is we want to respect both writers and readers. Right. And so part of the sort of contract, the fundamental contract on Substack is you have this direct relationship. And so if we start putting stuff in the email of, that you're sending to your people that you didn't have a say in, that doesn't necessarily feel great, even if it's kind of like, you know, would be good for growth or good for for whatever sort of metric thing. So we kind of want to find ways to do it that respect the reader writer relationship yeah. and i think there are ways that will that that do do that that are actually even better than kind of the simple you know here's a thing we think you'll click on approach yeah and it does seem like there are kind of competing values here because there is I, like i said a million times over i understand your argument about like wanting to not be this engagement driven thing where you're you know just trying to keep people there, trying to give them whatever, whatever will scratch the itch that they need scratched. I understand that. But then there's also, you know, the promoting growth and, you know, how, how do people get their names out there? How do readers find what they want to read? There, there are times that I think the, hey, let's have people recommend stuff that they like model. It's really nice. And there's kind of no downside to it. Except that, are they going to do that? Because it takes a lot of time. You, you really have to, you have to vet someone. You have to, you know, read their columns and really, you know, wonder, is this somebody I want to endorse? It's, especially in this day and age where you can get flayed if you endorse the wrong person, it can be kind of tricky. I can see how a lot of writers are going to go, eh, I'm just going to kind of play it safe and not do that. And I'll also say that, you know, personally, most of my growth comes from like I said, guest columns. Guest columns are first, mentions are second. If you're if you're not lucky enough to get a mention or a guest, and I could only get the guest columns because I had the John Oliver you know connection, so I can send people cold emails and be like, hey, I've like written stuff before. I just wonder, what what what's your response when you hear me say, ah, you know, it's a nice the, the recommendation thing. It's a nice idea, but it might just be a little bit wishful thinking. It, it might just not be potent enough to give writers who are building from zero the boost they need to you know reach that critical mass yeah i mean so if if the question is are recommendations working 
Fortunately, the answer to that is yes. Like we do see a major shift. This is not something that like nobody's no, working doing. for me. Working for me. <laughs> that's yeah, the only. Like, well, there was, that's, that's the, that's only, the only thing that matters. <laughs> that's the only thing that matters. Um, if it's but, working for everyone else on Substack, but not right. me, I don't give a damn. But no, is this okay. the only? Is this the Work, only thing? Is this, is this the only way that we introduce people? I take your point, and the answer is probably no. Like there's probably other. In fact, we know there are other things we want to do. That's kind of just one example of here's a way that we can do the thing you're asking. Like, how do I get in front of new people that are going to like my stuff in a way that is just substacky? It's like, it's putting writers and readers in charge. There's other things that we can add to that to do that. Now, mm-hmm. you know, the, part of the reality here is that lots of people want to be a famous writer. And mm-hmm. there's nothing that Substack is ever going to be able to do that makes it so that anybody who starts out with no audience can can grow to a huge audience um, because of the sort of laws of physics and number of people that there are in the world. Um, <laughs> so you're saying you're saying all seven billion people on Earth are not going to have successful Substacks? Yeah, and I think that's you know in this in this kind of like this kind of creative pursuit that's sort of that is sort of a normal thing. And the real question is how can we make sure that the things that are uh, great and special, like your Substack, can like we can help people connect with the, the that would deeply value it. Yeah, th- there are times that I wonder: would it be possible to write a normie algorithm? Because uh, yeah, I mean, you made the point that algorithms are a very common thing, and they come in all sorts of varieties. Do they all have to be inflammatory? I mean, because the ones that are problematic and the ones that, you know, get uh, long Atlantic articles written about them are the ones that, you know, you do start, you start down a path and long story short, you're storming the Capitol on January 6th because you read some <laughs> super inflammatory cut. I mean, that's Record the- scratch, freeze frame. How did I get here? <laughs> that's exactly. Exactly. Eight days ago, I was a very normal person. <laughs> you know, now I'm here with this bear spray. It's insane. But that is, yeah, that, that is the horror story of somebody who uh, got into an epistemic bubble and, and didn't get out. But I wonder if that is because the algorithm was written badly. C- certainly, I mean, you know, my whole bet here is that there is a market for, uh, you know, normie liber- liberalism written in a funny way. And there certainly seems to be. Couldn't an algorithm <laughs> recognize, hey, you're a person who likes a variety of viewpoints in your media diet. You're a person who goes to stuff that's center-right, center-left, maybe far-right. Far I read Fre- Freddie DeBoer. He's a good writer, uh, even though he's awfully far-left. I read The Dispatch, even though they're on the right, and I, you know, I don't agree with them, but they're like the smart version of that, so I enjoy it. Um, couldn't an algorithm recognize, okay, you're kind of in the market for stuff that's all over the place and feed that impulse as opposed to feeding the impulse of like, just give me whatever is flaying my enemies in, uh, you know, the harshest way. Yes, I actually, I do think so. And I think it's not, it's not actually about the quality of the algorithm. I think it's about the goal of the algorithm, Mm -hmm. right? So the problem with the Twitter algorithm is not that it's a bad algorithm. Bad bad in that it, bad in that it does not do the function that it's designed to do, right? Yeah, exactly. Like it's too good. Yeah. Right. If the goal of the algorithm is just engagement, if it's just what are you going to click on, what are you going to pay attention to, Mm -hmm. uh, and then you set it loose among human beings who are 
hardwired to pay attention to things that threaten them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, you get predictable results. And part of the theory with Substack is like, look, people will will hate read things, but they won't hate pay for them, basically. Mm-hmm. And so, if, if to the extent that we are introducing a system that's intru- like introducing people to things. Our, the, the, the term for this is objective function. Our objective function, the thing that we would want the, the algorithm and the system to do is introduce you to stuff that you decide you like enough that you might give your email and even pay for. Mm-hmm. And the goal of giving you something that you fall in love with and, and pay for is just going to cause different things to win than the goal of like what's going to keep you scrolling. Right. And neither is perfect and neither is like – there's no – I don't think there are miracle cures and I think everything has trade-offs. But I think that the the doing the thing where you have to make a decision to, to subscribe to something, where you have to make a decision to pay, puts you in the driver's seat of like the algorithm is going to bring you the things that you value instead of the things that are going to kind of just like – keep you glued to the thing. Yeah. I I find that Substack is just a much nicer place to hang out than Twitter. Uh, I go, I go to my comment section frequently. I I read it, you know, there's always, uh, you know, one or two people make me kind of roll my eyes, but generally speaking, (laughs) it's a, it's a good discussion. And I, I think that is largely because, well, mine happens to be completely free and yet some people are paying me. So certainly that the fact that like money is involved does make it different from the super cheap Twitter interaction where you can just <laughs> sign up, pour poison in a thousand people's ears, log off, and <laughs> that was your day. And, it, and not it, just can you, like that's how you get famous. That's Oh, that's... You're going to be huge on Twitter if you do that. God, yes. It, it's, I, it's, I'll tell you, it's incredibly depressing to me as somebody, you know, writing in the political space and starting this thing from scratch and trying to realize, okay, how do I build this thing? The answer is perfectly obvious. Pick a side and then just hammer that side as hard as you possibly can. And specifically go after that side's enemies all the time. Like that is the very obvious, quickest path to Twitter fame. Yeah, do the thing that's going to maximally make your side sort of cheer and maximally piss off the other side. Do the thing where people on the other side are going to say, see, I told you our enemies were like that. And they retweet you. Yes. That's the, and so like the, the, whatever the worst possible example, like the dumbest possible version of every (laughs) argument, there's like this market incentive. That's how you win. And so somebody's going to do it. And if you don't do it, somebody else is going to do it and they're going to get 20,000 retweets. So what do you want to do? Yeah. I I have noticed there is like this um, path to, Twitter fame that is uh, being a person who gets dunked on all the time. You think like, oh, no, who wants to who wants to get dunked on all the time? It's like, no, if people are retweeting your stuff, no matter even if they're people you consider enemies. okay, they retweet you. They say, oh, my God, look at this idiot. But then you get to respond to them in a highly public forum and say, no, fuck you, actually. (laughs) And then everyone who's on your side, you become a hero to everyone on your side. Because you're now in this high-profile argument, uh, you know, backing one side, whereas a second ago, you were nobody. So at least you've got some visibility, right? I do think there's a judo move you can play, by the way. I don't know if you saw (laughs) when our video was on, but I'm wearing my slow, boring T-shirt. And Matt Iglesias, in my mind, is the master of kind of like... Having a really boring, normie, left liberal take that yes. also drives everyone fucking bananas 
And so I, he kind of gets to have his cake and eat it too, or he just says something kind of like basic and true and smart and everybody loses their shit and retweets it in hate. Yeah, I, I think uh, one of the secrets to his success is that people lose their minds to him saying very reasonable things. <laughs> and I think they're I think they're actually completely connected. I think people kind of lose their minds sometimes in response to him because he's so reasonable and because some part of their brain maybe suspects that he's right and suspects that perhaps he's making a pretty d damn powerful argument sometimes. So they find that very threatening. Yeah, he he's a, he's a good writer. Good writer. I was very happy that he let me to a guest column. That's awesome. So we've kind of established that algorithms can be anything that you write them to be. So number one, is there hope there? Can they be written in ways that are consistent with what you're trying to do? And then number two, might that happen at some point in the future? Yeah, I think that to me, the algorithm thing is a, is, is a red herring. Like I said, algorithms are like electricity. There are tens of thousands of algorithms in Substack today. The real question, the, the thing that's actually different about what we're doing is we're trying to create a different business model, a different incentive structure, mm -hmm. right? Because we don't make money by slicing up your attention and selling it as a commodity to advertisers, we as a platform just can have a fundamentally different incentive, a different way to win, which is finding you stuff that you value enough that you want to pay for it and keep paying for it. And the theory is that that incentive structure, we can just make that transparent and writers and readers can both see that and be like, hey, actually that that aligns with my incentives as well. If you're a writer, I want to get paid. If you're a reader, I'd be willing to pay for stuff that I, that I find valuable and that I want in my life and mind. And everything that we can do in support of that and you know all of the ways that we can introduce people to things they like, I think it, it unlocks a bunch of ways that we can do that in a good way that's just not accessible to companies that, that work off of engagement and attention. Yeah. So you are committed to, because it, it can't all be the high profile people that you lured over from some other publication. It, it has to also be people growing from scratch, acknowledging that uh, not everyone is going to become a Substack superstar yeah. just because they started it. Yeah. In fact, not only is that I actually think that's the main, most exciting thing about Substack over time, right? It's great when famous, already famous writer quits their job and comes and makes 10 times as much money on Substack and gets to do the work they believe in. And, and you know, we love that and it's great. And it's, you know, that stuff tends to be high profile. But even today, a lot of the, the most successful people on Substack are people that were not professional writers before. Mm -hmm. And if you think of just from like a cold blooded business calculation, like, we believe that there's so much like value in the world that there's so many people who have something to give the world as a writer, as a podcaster, as a thinker, as a storyteller that just like doesn't exist yet, but could exist if there was a better model and unlocking that and helping them grow and helping them succeed and helping them like become the best version of the thing they can make is actually like the, the best, business opportunity and also the reason that Substack is worth working on in the first place. Yeah, I, I am a big believer that gatekeepers are often very bad at what they do because I'm coming from the comedy world and there are a lot of gatekeepers in comedy and uh, very often, how'd they become the gatekeeper? They bought the comedy club. That was their only qualification. <laughs> or they work, in, they work in Hollywood, they work in production. How do you get that job? Well, very often it's you put up the money. So it's not because you had any great 
comic sensibility or, you know, you're really great at picking winners, uh, you know, sort of a Lauren Michaels figure. Lauren Michaels, to his credit, has picked a lot of winners over the years. But a lot of producers and other gatekeepers are not like that. They just happen to be the person who has that role and they kind of suck at it. And I am in agreement that many times there is more talent out there than people are seeing. So, my God, I hope that you're right. <laughs> I hope that you're right uh, about uh, Substack being a place where those people can grow because both as a producer and a consumer of stuff, uh, I like finding that stuff. I do worry that the people who are trying to grow something from zero need more of a push. Um, it's because there's so much stuff out there. It's like, how do you sort through it? How do you find the band that you like? How do you find the writer that you like? How do you find the Etsy store that you like? It's tough. It's something I think about a lot because I'm coming from the writer's perspective. And my basically my greatest fear is that I'm one day going to conclude if I really want to build this thing, if I really get a, if, if I want to make this as big as it could possibly be, I need to go get Twitter famous. <laughs> That's the day that I'm going to bury my head in my hands and go, oh, fuck, I need to go on Twitter and do it. All right. Well, we'll, we'll work on making it so you don't have to do that. <laughs> That's. I've been very explicit about my goals now. I just don't want to have to go be Twitter famous. Well, Chris, thank you very much for being my first guest ever. Is there anything you want to say before we sign off? If you're thinking about starting a Substack, you should just start one. Go to Substack.com. It's really easy. And Chris guarantees that you will be a millionaire within, what's the time? For, six months? Is it six or eight? Minutes after your first post is delivered to the world's <laughs> microphone, mi microwaves. <laughs> millionaire within days and then storming the Capitol mere days after that. Chris Best, thank you very much for being my first guest ever on the podcast. Thanks. And thanks for uh, being on Substack. Fuck, I forgot to ask him for money. Ah, shit. I was, he's a tech CEO. He's a tech CEO. I was going to ask him. I thought perhaps if I just said, Give me $100,000, please. He might have done it just to not have bad PR. Well, opportunity missed. I hope you thought that was interesting. I thought it was interesting to hear one of these people actually talk through why they're doing what they're doing. But I thought that was a good conversation. I don't know why they kicked him out of the Beatles. Seems like a good dude. Anyway, as you can tell by this cacophonous music fading up, we have reached the end of the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoy the garbage I produce, please go to my substack, imightbewrong.substack.com. You may pay me if you like to, and that would be much appreciated, but it is at the moment totally free. Please share the articles if you like them. Please leave me a review if you like the podcast. If you don't like the podcast and you're willing to just lie and give me a review for the Dadaist fuckery of it, hey, that's great. And thank you very much for listening. I will be back next week with another episode. Bye for now. Yeah.